1 Samuel chapter 18, would you? 1 Samuel chapter 18 in the Scripture. As you're turning there, all the children, four years old up through third grade, you can be dismissed just now. All the children, four years of age up through third grade. You can follow Mr. Drew out the back door for children's Bible time. 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'm curious to know uh, who are my chess players here tonight? Who likes to play chess? Let me see your hand. Okay, good, good. Uh, how many of you, you don't really like it, but you'll play it? Okay. How many of you don't like it and don't play it? Okay, all right. Well, we've just divided the church. I told Pastor today I don't try to church split, but split churches, but maybe I just began one. I don't know. I was at a church out in uh, California, and the Saturday after we were leaving, they were having a chess tournament that had been arranged and organized by somebody in the church as an evangelistic tool. So they had, I don't know, uh, 25 teams that they played throughout that Saturday. And the pastor came and preached the gospel. So I guess chess players need the gospel as well. But I thought that was a great idea. Tonight, for a few moments, I want to preach to you on the subject, how to become Satan's pawn. How to become Satan's pawn. Now, the king, let's see of your chess knowledge, see how we're, we're doing. Where can the king move? One space in any direction. That's right. Where can the queen move? Any space, any direction. That's right. Where can the uh, bishop move? Diagonal. Where can the knight move? Three spaces one way and one space up or side or whichever. I, I probably didn't say it according to the proper chess protocol. Uh, which way can the rook move? Horizontal or, or vertical only. Uh, how about the pawns? Uh, where can the pawns move? They can move two spaces forward on the very first move. They can attack only diagonal. They can only move forward one space after that first move forward two spaces. Is that correct? Am I right? Now, how, how would you become Satan's pawn? Now, someone says, I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my own destiny. But that's a, a foolish notion. You're either surrendered to the Lord or you're surrendered to the devil. And, and yes, you do have a will in the matter. Uh, some would like to deny that we have a will, but the Bible clearly teaches that we have a will. That God is resisted oftentimes. He said to Jerusalem, Jesus did. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered thee as a hen gathered her chicks but she would not. Pharaoh hardened his heart and resisted the Lord. There were others who resisted the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, uh, Agrippa said to Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, oh, I wish that you were not only almost, but altogether persuaded. Certainly God's grace and God himself can be resisted. God has given man a free will. <clears throat> I know some don't like to think about it in those terms, but that's that's Bible. That's not what man came up with. That's Bible. And that doesn't make God any, any less control. In fact, it really highlights his great control because he who could control us down to the minute and control us down to every single choice that we make has given us that choice. What an amazing God. 
What an amazing thing. If there was no free will, there would be no there would be no such thing as love freely chosen and freely given. But here you become Satan's pawn as exemplified in the life of one named Saul. I want you to see it as the Bible unfolds it in first Samuel chapter 18. Would you notice the Bible says it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And then in these four verses, starting the chapter out, Jonathan and David will become knit close together and fast friends. Verse five, and David went out with us, whoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrays, with joy and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David thousands, uh, ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? You know, I get the idea at the very onset of this passage, and, and especially in the reading of this verse, that Saul was somewhat pragmatic. That Saul was very interested in the numbers game. That Saul was also very interested in the approval of men. Do you know you eventually will serve what you worship? What you worship now, you'll serve later. If you worship numbers and you worship uh, the final tally and you worship the score uh, being in your favor, humanly speaking, according to human metrics, you know, God judges things not according to human metrics and men judge things not according to divine metrics. If you judge things based upon purely what is seen and the immediate results and the here and now, instead of looking down the road by faith, faith always takes the long look. And you judge things pragmatically according to numbers. He said, so they have ascribed unto David ten thousands and to me. They have ascribed but thousands. Sounds like he wanted to have the ten thousand number on his account. And by the way, if you'll look back at it, you'll see that he totally misunderstood them. It says in verse seven, the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. He might have had a tiny case if they had said Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. But they didn't say that. They weren't pitting David against Saul. They weren't pitting David as far ahead and Saul as lagging behind. They weren't trying to somehow praise David to the exclusion of Saul. They recognized David and Saul were on the same team. They were just giving honor where honor was due because David had just killed the giant, something Saul hadn't done. David had just killed the giant and set the enemies of God to flight and set the Philistines to a failure and defeat. But Saul didn't hear that. Saul just heard the 10,000 going to David and thousands going to him. If he'd been a wise king and a good leader, you know what he would have said? This is a mark of my good leadership. Why, just a few verses earlier, I set David over my men of war. That means I'm not the only one that sees it. If Saul had been a man of tall character and not just tall stature, he would have rejoiced in this. By the way, the test of your character is how you respond when those around you succeed or are praised. I hope you're glad that they are. 
We live in such a class envy society that is constantly stirred up and the rich are pitted against the poor and the poor are pitted against the rich. And this racial group or this uh, this ethnic group is pitted against that ethnic group and this political party pitted against that. You know, you ought to be glad when someone else around you is praised and not sad. You ought not be suspicious when someone else succeeds or makes money or buys a new house or a new car. You ought to be rejoicing with them that rejoice instead of looking at them with squinty eyed envy. That's the way Saul was looking at them. So I want you to notice that Saul's road on the way to becoming Satan's pawn began with Saul's envy. Would you say that tonight? Saul's envy. Would you say it again? His envy, the green eyed monster of envy that will get you every time. The Bible says, be not thou envious against wicked men. The Bible says, desire not his dainties. Uh, don't long to be like the wicked. Looks like the wicked win because they live long lives and they aren't cut off. And sometimes the righteous are cut off early. And sometimes we look at the wicked and we say how they succeed. And we see the righteous and see how they don't seem to succeed. And we think, why, there's something wrong. Maybe I should be with the wicked. And David said, I was thinking that maybe that was the way to go until I went into the house of the Lord. And I got my worship right and my worship straight. And I got that all squared away in my heart right with God, then I realize their end. The wicked can enjoy it now. They'll have all eternity to think about it. The wicked can, in, they can rejoice in their victories over righteousness now. They can rejoice in their Supreme Court decisions now. They can be excited about how evil has triumphed now. But evil doesn't triumph in the end. Never. Never. Not one time. Not ever has evil triumphed in the end. And it won't triumph in the end. But Saul was looking with envy at David. And and the Bible says that he envied David. Oh, how people have envied others in the Bible. Haman envied the Jews because Mordecai wouldn't bow and worship him. And he envied him. He envied that character and he envied that worship. And he wanted one more person to worship him. And what did it lead to? It led to Haman becoming Satan's pawn. Haman becoming Satan's pawn. Cain envied his brother Abel because Abel's sacrifice was accepted and his sacrifices was was not. It was a simple fix. It was a simple fix. All he had to do was humble his heart and offer a blood sacrifice. But he wouldn't humble his heart and he wouldn't offer a blood sacrifice. And so God was displeased. And the Bible says that God spoke to Cain and he says, if you do well, won't you be rewarded? He says, if you do evil, sin lieth at the door. He, he, he gave him an opportunity to fix it. And Cain dug in his heels and wouldn't fix it. And his envy led to him becoming Satan's pawn and killing his brother, committing the first murder, the first murder committed on this planet was one brother killing another brother. He became Satan's pawn. Why? Because of his envy. Pharaoh envied the Jews and didn't want to lose them. Didn't want to lose that great segment of his economy. And so he began to dig in when Moses came and said, I have a message from the Lord to you that you should let my people go. And he said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And so he began to envy the Jews. And through that envy, he hardened his heart against God and hardened his heart against God's word. And then there came a point where he crossed a line and God hardened his heart. And Pharaoh, you find him in the end, rallying his troops after he had let Israel go and leading an army against innocence, ready to wipe them out and drive them into the sea. And God put a wall of 
cloud, dark cloud on his side and bright light and fire on the Israelite side. And he made a way through the Red Sea so that the children of Israel could cross on dry land. They got up all the other side and God lifted that cloud and Pharaoh saw him and he starts to pursue them. His envy blinded him, blinded him so that Pharaoh became a pawn of the devil and destroyed countless lives around him as he drove his whole army into the middle of the sea simply to be engulfed and swallowed up by the judgment of God. Herod envied the fact that there was going to be someone worshipped as king other than him. He envied the fact that someone would be deemed great, that someone would be having a throne and a crown and a rule other than him. And in great anger, he was frustrated and angry at the wise men for not coming back and reporting to him. What is it? What did his envy lead him to do? Led him to send soldiers down and kill all those children two years old and younger. And he wiped them out. And that was why Rachel cried weeping for her children and would not be comforted. What does envy do? It is the first step on the road to becoming Satan's pawn. Maybe there's someone you're envying here tonight. Maybe there's someone that you're envying outside of this place tonight. Maybe you envy their spirituality because you don't like how, how, how they seem to always get a word from the Lord and always get something from the Scripture and always get a, an answer to prayer and always have an opportunity to witness and always seem to be uh, smiling and always seem to be rejoicing and you just envy that. And, and, and instead of rejoicing in that, being glad about that, you're frustrated with that, angry with that, and you wish that you had what they had instead of taking steps to get what they have, you envy. Oh, you're well on your way to becoming Satan's pawn. Maybe you envy someone's economic success and you see how they can turn a dime into a dollar without hardly trying and they just seem to get ahead financially and you don't understand it because you can turn a dollar into a dime real quick and you don't understand it. And some people just seem to have a knack and you look at that person and you envy them. Kids sometimes can envy their brothers and sisters and think that because their brothers and sisters uh, are more successful or they seem to have the Midas touch and they seem to be so athletic and they seem seem to be so smart and they seem to get, get ahead in grades. And, and here you are lagging behind, left with your own self and your own pity party. And if you're not careful, you can look through eyes of envy. I want you to notice his envy was leading him down the road to becoming Satan's pawn. But notice verse number nine. It says, and Saul eyed David from that day and forward. Hmm. He eyed David from that day and forward. How do you become Satan's pawn? Well, first, you yield to envy. Secondly, you give the devil your eyes. Notice Saul's eyes. Would you say that with me? Saul's eyes. Would you say it again? His eyes. Saul's eyes. We know that Saul is on the road to becoming Satan's pawn. Here Saul was a king that was great in his own right. He was a man who was little in his own eyes. He was humble. He found him when he was found. He was found hiding in the sheep coats because he didn't believe he was worthy to be called a king and could hardly. He was incredulous at the news. And and when we find Saul, we find a man that would be greatly used of God. And Saul, God had every intent to make him greatly used of the Lord. And yet Saul became big in his own sight. And now through squinty eyed suspicion, through narrow eyes, through a haughty look, 
He's examining David. That person that you're envying, if you're not careful, you'll begin looking at them through different eyes. Not the eyes of God. The eyes of truth. Not the eyes of sincerity, believing the best about them. Not the eyes of kindness. Not the eyes of love. Not the eyes of empathy or compassion. But the eyes of envy. You're looking at them with a totally different perspective. Do you know when you look through the eyes of envy, you can't see straight? Are you listening? Ladies, you can't see straight when you look at your friends or your family with the eyes of envy. I speak to you ladies specifically because I think ladies sometimes struggle with this thing of envy. They look at their neighbor and she's dressed to the nines. And boy, where does she get money to have those kinds of clothes? And boy, if only I had money to have those kinds of clothes. And men struggle with the same thing. But boy, sometimes ladies do. And I think the devil plays upon that part of the flesh that just is so vulnerable. And sometimes they look at that lady and say, boy, she seems to never have to struggle with weight. I walk up next to a donut and gain weight. She doesn't seem to ever have struggle. Boy, if only I had a slim and trim uh, look like she did, then all of my problems would go away. And if only I had a husband like her husband, my husband's a lug and my husband's a, a, just a, a, a lark to live with. And what a troublemaker. And, and boy, if only I had that and only I lived there. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, I don't think that Chip and Joanna Dake Gaines have helped us at all. Can I get an amen right there, men? I mean, come on. Amen. So, so I'm trying to help you men tonight. Some lady watches a home show and sees Chip and Joanna Gaines and hears the scene before and then brings a big screen and covers it all up. And the person comes out of their car and they're excited about this multi-thousand dollar makeover and they pull away the screen. And, oh, everybody's oohing and on and wonderful. And, and old Chip and Joanna Gaines, God bless their heart. They've caused more trouble in marriages and the lady says, you know, honey, if I could get my bathroom remodeled and if only the basement could do. And then the husband gets dragged out of his shop and he has to work with hard labor, bones to the quick, up early in the morning, late at night before he goes to work. And after he comes home, why? Because sometimes we just think somebody has it better somewhere else. Now, God bless all you ladies and your motivation for us men. And God bless all you men for giving your wives a good remodel. That's not a sin and of itself. But watch this. Envy is. And covetousness is. And not being satisfied with what God has given us and how God has made us and how God has blessed us and always looking for more is. And always wishing we were uh, somewhere else or always wishing we had something better. That is a sin. That is a sin. Well, we always think somebody has it better somewhere else. That's the way we think. I, I love to go visit my, my grandpa's next door neighbor, his name is, is Mr. Abramson. He has a fishing shack right next to the lake, Swan Lake, right in Pengilly, Minnesota. He's a great big, tall, six foot something Swede. And he loves Minnesota. And he loves Swan Lake. And he's in his 80s now, and he still fishes as much as he can, morning and night. Cane pole fishing with a nylon line and a spooner bait fishing for northern pike or walleye. And it's great. One day I was out on the boat with him and I said, have you ever been deep sea fishing? He said, nope, don't want to. I said, OK. He said, I love it right here in Minnesota, the land of two seasons, winter and everything else. And, and he said, I love it right here, right here. I don't want to leave this place. Now, I like somebody like that, that just loves where they're at. And blooms where they're at. 
And they're not always wishing that they were in some far off exotic place. And if they were, all their problems would be solved. Do you see how covetousness works? The, the, the fashion designers play on our covetousness. And the cell phone companies play on our covetousness. And the, and the tourist, uh, the, the, the tourist, uh, industry plays on our covetousness and flashes images before our eyes that make us have what they call a felt need. We didn't know we needed cell phones 20 years ago. Who knew? We didn't know we needed it. Now who can live without them? Well, besides Pastor Bishop. (laughs) Well, we didn't know we needed cell phones. Back then we were content. I had my Sam's Club dial-up card. How many of you remember those dial-up cards? Boy, I can almost still remember my number. And I probably could quote it to you right now. Not only my card number, but my not only the number to dial, but my card number. I could I could go. And it really excites me when I can remember those things. Wow. Just to try it. Just to try it. But what we were content, we didn't didn't have to have this technological leash surgically attached to our hand and on it all the time searching. But now who could live without it? I've got to know the news. I've got to be on social media. I've got this felt need. And boy, maybe we need to be free from it a little bit more. But do you see how they advertise it? My dad said, now, son, he's 89. How much does it cost to have one of those packages with your phone? And I start to explain it to him. And I said, oh, never mind, Dad. Just don't ever worry about it. Don't ask questions like that. (laughs) It's exorbitant when you think about what we pay just to keep connected. And what is this? It's all been fed by the felt need presented and the deep covetousness and envy in our hearts. And envy drives us to look at at things with a totally different perspective. A totally unsatisfied perspective. Perspective. When we're envious of others, we look at them not through God's eyes and not through kind eyes, but through envious eyes and through suspicious eyes. Instead of thinking the best, we think the worst about them. That's what Saul did. Look at verse 10. And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul. You say, wait, an evil spirit came from God upon Saul? Mm -hmm. Remember that torment we were talking about the other night, Sunday night? This might be it. Came upon Saul and he prophesied in the midst of the house and David played with his hand as at other times. And there was a javelin in Saul's hand and Saul cast the javelin for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. Hmm. And David avoided out of his presence twice. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. Therefore, Saul removed him from him and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved himself wisely in all his ways. And the Lord was with him. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before him. Look at me. Watch this. We can see that Saul is well on his way to becoming Satan's pawn, not just through Saul's envy, not just through Saul's eyes, the way he's looking at things. You can look at things and think you've got it right when, in fact, you've got it wrong. You can think through your eyes and from your perspective and from your vantage point, you've got everyone's number and you've got this thing figured out. 
Reminds me of the man that was a bum and he slept on a park bench and and some kids came along, decided that they were going to uh, play a practical joke on him. So they went to the store and got some Limburger cheese and they rubbed it on his mustache while he was sleeping. He got up, stretched as he was trying to wake up on that park bench. And he looked around. He said, this park bench stinks. And he got up and he walked through the park and he got over by the flowers and, and the lilacs. And he said, these flowers and lilacs stink. Then he decided he was going to go into the zoo. And so he went into the zoo and he looked at the lions and the giraffes and the bears. And he said, this zoo stinks. So he went out into the city and he walked up and down the lanes of the city. And, and, and he said, this whole city stinks. And the stink was right under his nose. You see, ladies and gentlemen, sometimes if we're not careful, we think our eyesight and our perspective and our conclusions are completely omniscient and they're far from it. The Bible says that these thick things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud, proud look. It's interesting, isn't it, that God put a proud look there? He didn't say a proud act, but we all have experienced by own personal experience and observation what a proud act looks like. He didn't say a proud word. We've all experienced what a proud word looks like. And had to eat crow in the process. He didn't say a proud word. He didn't even say a proud thought. We all know what it is to have a proud thought. He said a proud look. I wonder what a proud look looks like. Maybe it looks like this. Sticking up my nose. Turning it away from someone in need. Maybe it looks like this. Just squinty-eyed suspicion and envy. Maybe it looks like this. Scorn and disdain. Maybe you can give me some, some ideas of what a proud look like proud look looks like after service. Maybe I'll, I'll take pictures of folks and see if I can have a contest to see who has the best proud look in here tonight after service. Whatever it is, whatever a proud look looks like, God hates it. And oh, how he had that. And you know what that led to? Number three, Saul's emptiness. Do you see how empty Saul is when David is able to escape? Out of his presence twice when he tries to pin him to the wall with a javelin? Do you see how empty he is when he recognizes that the Lord was with him and was departed from Lord was with David and was departed from him from himself? Do you see how empty he is when he sees that all of Israel loves him and David behaves himself wisely? He was very afraid. Do you see how empty he is? It says in verse 17, and Saul said to David, behold, my elder daughter, Merab, uh, her will I give to wife. Only be thou valiant for me and fight for the Lord's battles. For Saul said, let not mine hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. And David said unto Saul, who am I and what is my life for my father's family in Israel that I should be son in law to the king? But it came to pass at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given Unto Adriel, the Meholathite, to wife. 
And Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul and the king, and and the thing pleased him. And Saul said, I will give him her that she may be a a snare to him. And she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Wherefore, Saul said to David, thou shalt this day be my son-in-law and in in one of the twain. And Saul commanded his servants, saying, Commune with David secretly, and say, Behold, the king hath delight in thee, and all his servants love thee. Now, therefore, be the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spake these words, or those words in the ears of David. And David said, Seemeth it to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law? That, he said, Seeing that I am, am a poor man and lightly esteemed. And the servants of Saul told him, saying, on this manner spake David and Saul said, Thus shall ye say to David, The king desireth not any dowry, but an hundred foreskins of the Philistines to be avenged of the king's enemies. He was thinking that he would fall by the hand of the Philistines. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. And the days were not expired. Wherefore David arose and went, he and his men, and slew of the Philistines two hundred men. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full tale to the king that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, to wife. He thought he was going to undo and destroy David by throwing him out like a lamb to the wolves to the slaughter and be killed by the Philistines. Nothing doing. Nothing doing. God's hand was on David and God's hand was off of Saul. Do you see the emptiness? Of not only his fear when he sees that David behaves himself wisely, not only his his astonishment when he sees that David flees out of his presence twice and avoids certain death by the hand of his own javelin. But do you see the emptiness of Saul as he tries to plot and scheme for David's end? What emptiness? Is that what you want? You've got envy in your heart against others like Joseph's brothers envied him. You've got envy in your heart, uh, like the Bible warns us to avoid in the book of Proverbs. Be not thou envious against the wicked. You've got envy in your heart. Don't you see where that's leading? It's going to lead to a, a totally different outlook in life. It's going to lead to a certain emptiness in life. You say a Christian can be empty? Yes. Yes. Though he has wellsprings of water and though he has a reservoir that will never run dry. If he will go to the world, he will be working with broken cisterns and bags with holes. That's not God's will. God's will is for your life to be full and overflowing. That's not God's will for you to go from emptiness to emptiness because of your own rebellion and sin. That's not God's will. God wants you to have an abundant life. A life full of joy unspeakable and full of glory. But that's not what Saul's experiencing. So here's the question of the ages. Was Saul a Christian? Was he a believer? Is Saul in heaven right now? I like to ask that question. Because I like to get people to think. Some people say, oh, no, 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 no way. No way Saul was saved. Look, he visits a witch of Endor at the latter part of his life. A hand of God was upon him. The Spirit of God left him. Well, the Spirit of God wasn't always on his servants. David prayed in his prayer after he had sinned with Bathsheba in Psalm 51. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. That means there was great potential for it to be gone. Samson worked with the hand of God on him and the Spirit of God on him in some battles. And some battles, God just let him fight on his own because he wasn't any part. He wasn't having any part of Saul's conniving and scheming or Samson's conniving and scheming. So was Saul saved? The Saul a believer? Is Saul in heaven? 
Some people say, oh, no, no way. No way, Saul. The way he did dirty to David, the way he schemed and tried to kill him personally and then tried to, by proxy of the Philistines, kill him and then give his daughter to marry David just so that he could become a snare. No, no way. No way he wasn't. He wasn't saved. No, no. The way he lost his tool and lost his temper, no way he was saved. But he prophesied and the Spirit of God came on him. I'm not sure of any person that the Spirit of God came on in the Old Testament who was not saved, who was definitively definitively not saved. But here's the takeaway. There's a question mark. I hope nobody, Brother Olenberg, looks at me and has a question mark over my salvation. I hope when they stand at my grave, they don't know they don't say, Well, we're not sure whether dad was saved or not. We're not sure whether, whether our, our uncle was saved or not. We're not sure whether our son was saved or not. We're not sure whether our son-in-law was saved. Wait. I don't know. You see, from outward appearances, he left a question mark. Fleshly choices and fleshly living. And that in and of itself leads to emptiness. Is that what you want? Is that the legacy? Maybe you can just order your gravestone now and have them put one thing on it. A question mark. I don't want anybody to put a question mark over my salvation. I want them to have an exclamation point over my salvation. I want them to, at at least from all human metrics and from outside looking in, I want them to be able to say, that man knew the Lord and that man walked with God and that man loved the Lord and that man lived for God and he didn't care about the world's approval or men's approval. He wanted to please the Lord. I hope that's what they say when they bury and put Dwight Smith six feet under. I hope... Years after I'm dead, they don't wonder as they study history whether Dwight Smith was truly born again or not. But here we are, thousands of years from the moment and thousands of miles from the spot, and we're still wondering whether Saul was saved. That must have been an empty life. You see, Saul is well on his way to becoming Satan's pawn. Why? Because of his envy, because of his eyes or his outlook and the way he looked at things due to his envy and because of his emptiness. But now look at Saul's evil. Look at look at Saul's evil in this passage of Scripture. He tries to kill him. First Samuel chapter 19, he does the same. Verse number eight, there was war again and David went out and fought with the Philistines and slew them with a great slaughter and they fled from him and the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand. David had played with his hand. Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence and he smote the javelin into, into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. Saul also sent messengers unto David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If thou save not thy life tonight, tomorrow thou shalt be slain. You know what Saul's going to do? He's going to wait. Next day he's going to come in. Michael's going to have made it look like David was still in bed, made it like he was sick. And David has got a head start on him. And when Saul comes in and finds that Michael was was defending or covering for her husband in the way that a wife should, he blows up! He destroys his relationship with Michael, his own daughter. He eventually destroys David and Michael's relationship. And it was past the point of recovery. Even later, when David called Michael back to be his wife, there was something irreparable that had been done. Michael, I believe, loved David. Ladies, who wouldn't love David? 
I mean, he had it all. The Bible says he was ruddy and of a fair countenance. That means he was good looking. The Bible says he killed a lion and a bear and a Philistine. That means he'd probably do a pretty good job protecting you. The Bible says that he played a harp and wrote songs. That means he could serenade you to sleep at night. And in the morning, the Bible says he was a pretty good shot. Who wouldn't want to marry a guy like David? And yet Saul ruined it all. Ruined his relationship with his own daughter. Ruined his daughter's relationship. How many parents have ruined relationships with their spouse's husband? With their daughter's husband or their husband's or their son's wife? Because they couldn't leave well enough and alone. They couldn't stop interfering in their marriage. They couldn't let the family leave and cleave. And they ruined and separated and marred that relationship. And they think they're oh so right when they're in oh so, oh so, oh so wrong. Why? Because they're not obeying the Bible. They're not doing things God's way. They're filled with envy and they're filled with strife. And they're looking at things from their perspective as if it's omniscient. And they're so wrong. And they live an empty, feckless life. And they're going to answer for it at the judgment seat of Christ. If not worse, he destroyed not only his relationship with his daughter. He destroyed his relationship with his daughter and her husband. He ended up taking Michael away from David and forcing her to marry a guy named Faltiel. I mean, which would you rather have as your husband, David or Faltiel? I mean, it's not even a it's a no brainer. What a loser of a name. Faltiel probably was a great guy, but he had a loser of a name. I don't know what his parents were thinking. Anyway, they named him Faltiel instead of David. And she, she, you know what the Bible says? When David got to be king, David went and got Michael and forced her to come back to him. And Faltiel followed behind her weeping. Maybe Michael said, now that I'm married to Faltiel, I'm out of the public eye. I don't have the Pavarazzi following me everywhere. I don't have the cameras in my face. I don't have all the public scrutiny. Maybe I can have a nice life in quiet. What a sad, sad situation this was. And it was all stirred, spurred, spawned by Saul. What evil. You see, you become a pawn in Satan's hand. And you can see Saul became a pawn in Satan's hand when he, it's, we see Saul's evil. Would you say it? Saul's evil. Would you say it? Saul's evil. Watch now. Saul's evil. He destroys his own relationship with his son, Jonathan. Jonathan and David were best friends. Saul wasn't satisfied. He was envious when David got in any way in his relationship. He destroyed his relationship with David. He could have had a great relationship with David. He could have loved David. He could have showed David the ropes. He could have said, you know, David, I've made some mistakes and here's where I went wrong. And, you know, God is going to put his hand upon you and he's taken his hand upon off from me. But, you know, whatever I have left of my life, I'm going to live it for the Lord, even though I've made some dumb mistakes prior to this. No. What does he do? He piles one bad decision on top of another. Destroys his relationship with his own son, Jonathan. Calls him the son of a rebellious woman. And, and, and accuses him of being so feckless and foolish that he doesn't want to take the throne. Even though Jonathan knew full well that throne wasn't his. It belonged to David. And Saul, though he was so insecure, had a son who was so completely secure. What evil. When we find Saul's life, we find his emptiness seen at the end of his life where no way can he get a hold of God. Samuel has died in 1 Samuel chapter 25. He can't get a hold of God. And in the next few chapters, you know what Saul's going to do? He's going to seek the witch of Endor to try to summon Samuel's spirit. What 
evil. And what do we find in 1 Samuel chapter 31? Look at it, 1 Samuel 31. And we're through. Notice what the Bible says. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 31, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons, and the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, Saul's sons. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded of the archers. Then said Saul unto his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. So Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men that same day together. Wow. Do you know what you find? Saul's end. Would you say it with me? Saul's end. We find Saul's envy... That's just a little start. It doesn't seem like it's very harm, harmful. It's a harmless little sin. You can have it as a pet sin. But it grew. That it outgrew his restraint. It outgrew his ability to keep it under wraps. And then it affected his eyes and blinded him. And grew to emptiness. And then it exposed itself to evil. So it comes to Saul's end. Sore wounded of the archers. He's pleading with his armor bearer. Kill me. Kill me now. Put me out of my misery before the Philistines really get a hold of me. Oh no. No, I'm sworn to defend you, not to kill you. Saul says, fine. Unsheathes his sword and falls on it until the blood spills out and fills his chariot. What do we find? Saul's end. A tragic end. I look at Saul's life and I say, this whole thing was completely avoidable in the first place. And to a point, it was completely solvable. Until Saul crossed a line. He may be a Christian in the Bible, a believer in the Old Testament that shows us someone who crossed that point of no return and committed the sin unto death. And finally, God said, I'm going to have to take you home in a premature grave. Oh, I don't want that for anyone here tonight. Oh, I don't want that for any man or any woman who's gone down the road of envy or any other self-indulging fleshly sin of the flesh or of the spirit. Oh, I don't want that. I don't want that for anyone here tonight or anyone listening by way of my voice. Oh, that we would have a group of Christians here tonight who would say, God, I don't want to be a pawn in Satan's hand. Wherever I am on this spectrum, Lord, deliver me from it. I want to be in your hand. I want to be clay in the potter's hand. I want to be a a vessel brought forth for the finer. Oh, God, please rescue me from Satan's clutches and from Satan's influence and from Satan's thinking. Lord, deliver me from being pawn in the hand of the devil. I'll tell you tonight, it's a choice that you must make. And the only way as a Christian to be avoiding, to avoid being a pawn in the hand of Satan is to surrender your life to the one with nail prints in his hands. To surrender yourself to the one that has borne his wounds for you. Say, Lord, I'm yours. Lord, take me. 
Lord, I don't want to be in anyone's hands except yours. You do with me what you please. I surrender my all to you. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I thank you for your attention to the Bible tonight. I wonder with your heads bowed and eyes closed if you'd say, Brother Dwight, I know that I'm saved. But tonight, as you've been preaching, God's Spirit has spoken to me about my need. To turn away from some evil influence of the devil and surrender my heart or my life or my words or my tongue or my thinking to the Lord. If that's you, would you slip up your hand as a Christian? God bless you. Good. Amen. Say, I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. That matter settled. But boy, there's some evil thing that has begun to creep, in, creep into my heart and life and influence my thinking. I want to ask the Lord Jesus, the one with nail prints in his hands, to rescue me by his hand, to take me from any way of being a pawn in the devil's hand. Anyone else along with these? Just slip up your hand. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Good. In a moment, we're going to stand and I know that you're as a Christian longing to be right with the Lord. And as soon as my wife begins to play a few verses of take my life and let it be, God's spoken to you. You come, don't you wait. In fact, you don't even have to wait now. God's spoken to you. You come. Come on right now. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to ask who here would say, preacher, I'm not perfect, but I know that I'm saved. If I died today, I'd go to heaven. If I died five years from now, I know that I'd go to heaven. If you don't know that, it won't help you or me to raise your hand. But if you do, would you just lift your hand right now and say, yes, I know. Okay, God bless you. You can put your hands down. I wonder with heads bowed and eyes closed, is there anyone here that would say, preacher, I don't know that. I wish I knew. I'd like to know, but I don't know. If that's you, would you say, Preacher, I'd like to get it settled tonight. Would you slip up your hand? Is there anyone on the main floor, the balcony, anyone here on my right or on my left? Just slip up your hand and indicate that by uplifted hand. All right, let's stand, shall we, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, speak to us. Help us to obey you. You've spoken very clearly through your word. Now, Lord, help us to submit to it and yield to your hand. We pray it in Jesus' name. Heads are bowed.